We're continuing our series in the book of Acts called Our Hearts Burn Within. And today we look at courage and heroism. We're going to look at courage and heroism, what they are, where they come from, and how we get them. Courage and heroism, what they are, where they come from, and how we get them. And we're going to be in Acts 5, verses 26 through 42. And before I read, I'm going to give you a little bit of context. And then after I read, I'm going to give you a whole lot more context. But here's the situation that you need to know. Peter and John are about to be brought in for a trial. And the captain of the guard and some of the leaders and some of the officials are going to basically bring them in for this trial. So here it goes. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. So picture Peter, the rest of the disciples, sitting before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They're talking about Jesus now. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do to these men. For before these days, Thaddeus rode up, claiming to be someone, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed after him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they let the prince, the pre, left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. All right, first point, courage. Before I talk to you about what courage is, I've got to put you in the context so you see just how courageous these apostles were. Days earlier, Peter and John were walking to the temple to go and preach inside of the temple, inside the temple grounds. And as they're walking in, this movement of Christianity that's been forming, as they're walking in, there's a beggar at what's called the beautiful gate. And the beggar asked them for some money, and Peter and John say, we have something better, rise up and walk. 
the miracle spreads around all the land and gathers a crowd. And as the crowd is gathering, they gather in the temple grounds and go to what's called Solomon's Portico. So let me give you the picture here. So the temple grounds are about the size of 25 football fields. You could picture a giant stadium, and within the temple grounds is the actual temple that has a covering, but the rest of the grounds, it's in open air. And Solomon's portico backs up to a 400-foot-tall wall, and there are these giant columns that are reaching up, and that's where the Christians have been gathering. So Peter steps forward, and he says, this miracle that has drawn you here, This is a shadow of something greater. The source of the miracle is the resurrection of Jesus. And because of it, everything is about to change. The news of Peter preaching this sermon, the, the religious elite catch wind of it. And when they hear of him gathering this crowd, preaching about the resurrection of Jesus, they arrest him. Him and John. And then they bring him in the next day for a trial. And the people that they are appearing for, Peter and John, they're looking out at this council, and it's the, it's the Sanhedrins. These are the same men who sentenced Christ to death. So Peter and John know what they're up against. Their life is in jeopardy, yet still they speak boldly about the resurrection of Christ, even when they tell them not to. So eventually they just decide, we're going to go ahead and let them go. But they say, but don't speak anymore about Jesus. As soon as they let them go, they march right back over to Solomon's portico and continue to preach about the resurrection. This continues on, and even more crowds are gathering. There's this huge commotion happening in the temple grounds. The religious elite hear about it again. This time they're jealous and enraged, and so they have them arrested for a second time. This time they're thrown into prison, but then an angel of the Lord opens up the prison doors, and they are set free. And the angel of the Lord says... Go where? To Solomon's portico to continue to preach about the resurrection. And so they continue to preach again about the resurrection. And when it comes time for their second trial, the religious elite look for them and they're not in jail and they're perplexed. And then someone says, I think I saw them in Solomon's portico again preaching. So they send the captain of the guard and the officials to go and bring them. But the captain of the guard and the officials are terrified. Because they think they're about to be stoned because the people who have gathered know that this is the same group, the Sanhedrin, that crucified Christ. They don't want to see that happen to Peter or John. And so the the captain of the guard and the officials approach Peter and the disciples and say, can you just come with us to this trial? And they say, yeah, we'll come. So they walk in before the Sanhedrin again, and the Sanhedrin says, Did we not tell you to stop preaching in his name? And yet now all of Jerusalem is hearing about this name of Jesus. They're enraged. Peter responds again for the second time. We must obey God and not men. Our God. We must obey him who sent his son Jesus here And you, religious leaders, crucified him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead, and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. You killed him. God rose him from the dead. And this religious elite, they're they're ready to kill them. Like, their, their lives are at stake. 
And then someone on the council, Gamaliel, says, hey, before we do this, every other movement that we have seen, it died off as soon as the leader died. So let's wait and see what happens or else we might find ourselves opposing God. So they say, okay, we'll do that. But we're going to beat them almost until their death. It's, it's known as 40 lashes minus one. And so the idea is 40 lashes would kill somebody. So let's give them 40 lashes minus one, bring them almost to their death. And that happens. And then the apostles rejoice that they have just suffered. And what the irony here is that by being dishonored for the name of Jesus, they feel honored. They're bruised, bloodied, and they go back. And do you know where they go? Solomon's portico, to continue to preach about the good news of the resurrection. And this is the beginning of the physical persecution of the church, of the early church. And this would last for almost nearly 300 years. Christians, from this point on, would begin to be persecuted. Many would be martyred, fed to lions. Thousands would be killed. Many would lose their citizenship. Right before Constantine becomes a Christian, churches are burned. Scripture is taken, clergy are tortured, and many are killed, and again, they lose their citizenship. Now, you look at this, oh, and then there's this guy named Tertullian. He's a, he's a church leader at the time, and when all of this is happening, here's what he says. Kill us, torture us. Condemn us and grind us to the dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The seed is the blood of Christians. Meaning you keep persecuting us and we're going to be like this flower that is blooming. And it's going to, it's, you, you, you kill us and the movement will catapult. Now, when you think of courage and heroism, you know it when you see it and you can see it here. In the early church. So what is courage? Courage is to hold convictions about truth in the face of danger and opposition. Courage is to hold convictions about truth in the face of danger and opposition. But heroism is a little different. So when you're courageous, you could be courageous about a truth that is yours in opposition. So Hitler could be considered courageous, but not heroic. Because to be heroic, you need to have the right truth. And the higher the truth is, the more heroic you can be. So you look at Peter in John. Peter says, we must obey God over man. And what Peter is getting at is there is a truth that is above all other truths. There's a beauty that is above all other beauties. All beauties are pointing to the greater beauty. All truth is pointing to the greater truth. Every wonder that you look at, it's pointing up to God. Everything is pointing to him. We have found him, the ultimate truth, and we are reorienting our lives around him, and we will fight to the end, all the way to the death, so that people might know that this is true. So if you have the ultimate truth, that's the making of being a hero. And if you're courageous in your conviction of that truth, well, I mean, you're, you become this unstoppable force like the Christian movement. And this is what 
the religious elite are seeing as they're interrogating Peter. And Peter and John, they're not defiant. They're not like, we will not go down without a fight. That's not what they're saying. What Peter and John and the rest of the apostles are doing is they're saying, we are fighting for the ultimate truth. We're fighting for the ultimate love, and we will not stop. And we're doing it not just for ourselves, not just for our friends out there, but we're doing it even for you, religious elite. They're, they're ready to die for their enemies. I mean, this is the alt. You want to change the world? You find something that you are so convinced of is true and so transformative that you can look in the eyes of your enemies and love them and be willing to tell them the thing that will change them forever. And that's the stuff that changes the world. And what it does is it makes Peter and the apostles dangerous. Dangerous against anything that is evil, anything that is unloving, anything that is vile, anything that is unjust, they become dangerous against because they're going to take it down. Not by force, but by conviction of what is true and good and beautiful and loving. And they're ready to die for it. Most of us here will not die for our faith. Most of us here will not die for a loved one. Most of us here will not die for something that is good and right. But, and here's our next point, where courage comes from. Here's what I want you to see. If you do not live, or let's say it this way, if you live with the moxie, the grit, the courage to face whatever is before you heroically with holding on to this truth that is above all other truths, then it will absolutely change the way you live everyday life. Because a lot of us are thinking, well, I'm never going to have to do that. And if you're not thinking you're ever going to have to do that, then you don't approach life as if you're going to have to die for a loved one or if you're going to have to die for a truth. And if you're not approaching life like that, then you're going to miss out on every day-to-day opportunity for you to be courageous. If you have courage, you will live your life different than the rest of the world. You'll have an abundant and fruitful life in the everyday parts of it. Your marriage, your parenting, your friendships, your career will be radically changed if you're willing to live like these men in this story. So let's take your marriage, for example. If you're a coward in your marriage... Here's, here's how it, it plays out day to day. There's something you want to talk to your spouse about, but you don't have the courage to talk to them. And so you begin to resent them over time for not you having the courage to talk to them, but you're blaming them. And over time, you will find yourself distanced from your spouse. And you want to blame them, but it's because you didn't have the courage to talk to them about it. So whenever I do premarital counseling with a couple... If a couple says, oh, man, we're awesome, we never fight, immediately I know that someone is getting their way all the time and someone is almost never getting their way. So fighting is not bad. Fighting is good. It's about fighting the right way. It's about fighting with love. And so what happens is you have these two sinful people that love each other, and when they disagree on something, it causes some friction. Because what are they searching for? They're searching for truth. They're searching for what is right and good and beautiful. 
And when you search for that together with two people that love each other, it creates friction. It's like iron sharpening iron. And so you have to learn to fight the right way with love. And it's really important that your kids see you fight that way. Because if your kids are looking at you and they're never seeing you fight, then, then they say, okay, well, I guess a healthy marriage there is never fighting. And, well, that's not true. Because then someone's always getting their way. But if you fight and fight the wrong way, then they don't know what healthy fighting looks like. And so the key to a healthy marriage is to fight with love with your spouse, and let the friction transform you and your marriage. And then let me talk to the the husbands and fathers for a moment. If you are a coward in leading your family, I know that sounds harsh, this is worse, then your family will not respect you. And what I mean by that is when danger comes, They're not going to hide behind you. They're going to go hide behind somebody else. And that's a really bad thing. And it's bad because you love your family more than anybody else does. And so you want them behind you, where you are willing to give your life for them. But they have to see that in you. They have to trust that in you. And and, and I'm telling you, fellas, it's going to change the way you lead your family. there's There's been talk that men have grown weak today. And if that's true, I don't think it's because of a problem of courage. I think it's a problem of heroism. Now remember, so courage is to have a strength of convictions about what is, you think is true and right. But heroism is having a conviction of a certain right truth. You have to have the right truth. So I think the problem today, if there is a problem, is that Men don't know what to fight for anymore. We live in what's called a postmodern era. And the mark of a postmodern era is truth is relative, which means I believe what I want to believe, and you believe what you want to believe, and they believe what they want to believe, and everybody gets to believe whatever it is they want to believe, and if that's the case, then we don't know what we're supposed to believe. The foundation is not sturdy. There's nothing objective to stand upon. And so if you're like, well, we need to fight. You're like, well, what are we fighting for? And everyone's like, I don't know. So we have a problem. It's confusing. We don't know what is true and worth fighting for anymore. So we're definitely not going to give our life for something. Peter is courageous because he is convinced that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And he's ready to die for it. And then we look at the captain of the guard, the one who's supposed to be courageous in the story, the one who has the officers who who have his back, and they are terrified as they go to bring Peter and John and the apostles to the trial. And the reason they're terrified is they're like, I don't know why I'm doing this. Like, why am I bringing these men in? I have no strength of conviction about this. I'm just told to go do this. And so they just go and do it, and they're terrified about it. There's a, there's a saying that bad times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. And the cycle continues. I think I said that right. So the cycle continues, but the cycle stops. 
the cycle stops if in bad times we have no idea what we're fighting for. And in bad times, if we don't know what we're fighting for, it just leads to hell on earth. All right, let's talk about parenting. So you have these little minions, these little like monsters that you love so dearly. And they're so cute. And you're raising them. And do you know what they're doing? They're testing everything. Everything you say they're testing. And they're supposed to be doing that. It's their job. Do you know why they're doing it? They're trying to learn from you what is worth fighting for. They're trying to learn from you what the ultimate truth is. They're trying to understand what the world is like. And they're learning from you. They don't know to just ask you like, hey, dad, what's the ultimate truth? What's the ultimate beauty? They don't know to do that. But what they do know to do is to to press you to test you, to annoy you to the point of you showing them here is what life is about. Here's the ultimate thing, the ultimate truth. And what you're doing is you're now creating like these barriers for them of this is outside of love, this is love. This is outside of truth, but this is truth. And you're creating these walls that are good for them because when you have the right walls up, you are the most free. And let me say this about discipline. There's a couple ways to discipline. There's one where your house is absolutely chaotic. So you say, I got to do something about this. And, and you probably should. That's right. But it's not the ultimate reason to discipline. The ultimate reason to discipline is for love and truth. And so what you're doing when you discipline them to, to bring chaos, to, to take the chaos away, that's a selfish move because you're like, this is too much for me. I can't handle it anymore. I want the chaos to go away and I want order. But that's mo- mostly for you. But if you're doing it for them, you're doing it for love and you're guiding them towards what is true, right, and beautiful. And when you do that, well, you're being a hero to your kids, but you are creating heroes the future because you're teaching them what they should be fighting for all right let's let's take friendships you look at peter and peter is this guy you're like let's say you're in this crowd and you're watching him and you see this guy who is ready to die for you to know a truth like he's ready for for you to he's ready for him to die so you can know something And if he's willing to do that, you say, I probably should listen to what this guy has to say. And then you start saying, I probably should follow him. And when you think about friendship, you think about Peter. He's fighting for you for the sake of truth. In in the movie, uh, The Lord of the Rings, there's a scene where this woman has snuck onto the uh, battlefield. And she's fighting next to her little friend, who's a hobbit, which means he's like a really small guy. And... They're facing this grand enemy. And she says to him, fight for your friends, Mary. And I remember just being so moved by that. And I try to figure out, why am I so moved by this? And I think that's what the kingdom of God is. It's to stand beside your friend, so convinced of a truth. And it's the truth above all truth. The truth that's the ultimate good. And you're fighting for them, but you're fighting with them against anything that is evil, anything that's unloving. Beside your friend. That's the kingdom of God coming. And that's what Peter is doing for his friends. And then take your workplace. Here's why you need courage in your workplace. Because if you don't have the strength of conviction 
of the ultimate good, then you don't have a purpose in your life. And you won't have a purpose in work. But if you know the ultimate good, the ultimate beauty, the ultimate truth, then you can go to work every day with purpose, no no matter what it is that you're doing, because you're saying, I'm bringing the kingdom of God here. I'm bringing heaven to earth. You could be, you, your job could be as a garbage man who is picking up garbage every morning and you can have complete fulfillment in everything that you are doing because you look around at the neighborhoods and you say, I am doing this to make these neighbor, this neighborhood beautiful. I am doing this because I love these people. And I am working with purpose because I look over at my coworkers and I can make an impact on their life. And I could provide for my family as I do this. And purpose just begins to flood into your life because you have found something worth fighting for. And if you don't find this courage, maybe one day you're going to be in a situation that requires courage, maybe even to save a life. And if you don't have that courage to do it, you might spend the rest of your life feeling guilt and shame. So we need courage every single day. Every single day that the sun rises, there is courage required for you to step into that day. To do what is good and right and beautiful and true. So where does the early church get the courage that they have? And where do you get your courage? Christ, who is the way to courage. He's the path. Follow him into courage. He's the truth that you should be courageous for. And he is the life of courage. There's a a guy named Walter Truett Anderson. He's a cultural critic. And he says, today, leaders are stars, not heroes. Says that stars will gather a crowd, but heroes walk alone. And he says that stars will consult a focus group before they give a speech, but heroes consult their conscience. Christ is the hero of all heroes. In our verses, it says that he is both leader and savior, but the word for leader in Greek is archegos. Arch meaning the first one, the pioneer, the one who goes forward first. Ego, egos like the ego, the, the self. And in Greek culture, Hercules is called an archegos, a hero. And it, what, it, what it's meaning is Christ is the one, the ultimate one, who goes forward into the places that we fear most. He goes down into hell to fight for us, to make a way for us to go through it and out the other side. He goes into death to fight for us to go through out the other side. He goes into the darkness to be the light that expels the darkness. And so he's the hero who goes first, but he's also the savior, which means he has the power to actually save us. So he's willing as a hero, but he's able as the savior. And then there's this language, this imagery that's so important. The disciples say, you hung him on a tree. Why do they say that? 
The Bible says, cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. Okay, so Christ is cursed. What does this do? What is this getting at? Well, if you go all the way back to the garden, there's a tree there that ruins everything. And upon that tree is something hanging. It's fruit, but there's something else hanging on that tree, a snake. Now, whatever you want to make of the snake, just listen to, to the words. Did God really tell you that if you do this, you'll die? Did God really say that? You're really going to believe God about that? And so look at what's happening. Go back to, to Peter. Peter says, we will obey God and not men. But there in the garden, we see humanity obeying a snake and not God. And as soon as it happens, a curse falls on the land. As soon as it happens, a curse falls over all of us. And now all of us, even though we have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we keep picking evil. Because we have this propensity now to not listen to God, but to listen to ourselves. To not listen to God, but to fear humanity. And listen to humanity. To listen to what the crowd is saying. To do what the crowd is doing. So the curse remains. But then our hero steps forward. And he's cursed on the tree to lift the curse from us. To save us from our propensity to pick some other truth other than God. We get a new heart from this when we believe, but I want to I point something out about Christ. I want to look at what other religions say about him. It's really fascinating. So if you look at Buddhism, a lot of Buddhist leaders will say that Christ is a reincarnation of Buddha. Now, I'm not saying that, that I believe that. But what I'm saying is if they believe that, they should listen to what he has to say. If he's the reincarnation of Buddha. The Dalai Lama was asked, if you met with Jesus, what would you ask him? And he said, as a Buddhist, when I think of Christ, I think of someone who, is a, who has reached full enlightenment. But beyond that, someone who brings others into full enlightenment. There's a word for it, but I can't remember how to say it. And what he's saying is... We should listen to this guy. And then, so, so here's what the Dalai Lama said. If I got to meet with Jesus, I would ask him what the Father is like. Well, that's interesting. Hold on to that. And then if you look at Islam, Muhammad says that Christ is a prophet. And in the Quran, we know that a prophet cannot lie. And it's even said in the Quran that Jesus has never told a lie. So, okay, so, so in Islam, we should listen to what Jesus had to say if you are a Muslim. Okay, so let's listen to him. The Dalai Lama is listening to him. Muhammad says we should listen to him. So what does he say? Well, he says to the Dalai Lama, you want to know about the Father? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Muhammad says we should listen to Jesus and what he has to say. What does he say? He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. All other religions give you a prophet who points you up to God. A sage that says, here's the way to go. Christ comes and he says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm to the life. Come to me. 
Everything's pointing to me. Everything you're searching for is me. This longing that's deep within you that you don't even really understand, the longing is for me. So finally, just come to me. Now, then we have to ask, why does every religion seem to have so much respect for Jesus? Like, they're, they're, they have to deal with him. And you know what Jesus always does? When he's asked about whatever, he just keeps pointing people to the Father. He keeps saying, it's through me that you get to the Father. It's through me that you get to the Father. What is it about Jesus that everybody seems so attractive to? Like, what's it about him? Well, he is a hero. But he's a hero unlike all other heroes. He always seems to reverse things. So, Jesus comes on the scene. And... and and as he comes, he doesn't come armed. He doesn't come with a sword. He doesn't come with a shield. He doesn't come with armor on. But he comes and he faces our greatest enemy. You know what your greatest enemy is? It's sin, death, hell, and all evil. And you know how he faces it? Not with armor, not with a sword, but naked, carrying a cross. No one's like him. He doesn't come wearing a golden crown. He comes wearing a crown of thorns. And he doesn't sail and captain a wooden ship to the celestial shores of paradise. No, he captains a cross into hell, into death to fight for us so he might rise up out of death. And then we might like stand upon him as our foundation and ride the cross with him all the way back to the celestial shores. There's no one like him. He's the hero of all heroes. So if you want courage, if you want to be a hero, this is our last point, your courage, what do you do? Well, don't go to him as an example. If you look at Jesus as an example, he won't make you courageous. If you look to Jesus as a teacher, he won't make you a hero. You have to also look at him as your hero and savior. And when you do that, here's what the Bible tells you to do. Look. Look at him. It says, look to Jesus, the founder, like the archegos, the one who went first, the founder and perfecter of your faith. Okay, so you're looking at him. And then what? As you're looking at him, what does the scripture say? Jesus who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Okay, so he endured the cross. The joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Okay, here's what that means. You see him in the distance, and he's approaching you. But he's approaching the cross, too. And you're like the, the apostles, like, no, he's going to the cross. No, no, don't do it. Don't go to the cross, as the apostles are saying. And you keep watching him. And you see, as he approaches the cross that he's about to endure, he's not looking at the cross. He's looking beyond it at something else. What's he looking at? It's a person, but who is it? You. So when Jesus approaches the cross, his eyes are not on the cross. 
He's terrified of the cross. He begins to actually sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing what's coming to him. Sweating blood is something that can happen. It's called hematidrosis. You have to be under enough stress, and you actually begin to sweat blood. So he's there in the garden, sweating blood. He's approaching the cross. He knows what's coming at him, and yet his eyes are completely fixed on you, his joy. And you know why he's doing that? Because you, as his joy, he sees the cross, and he knows that the cross is something he has to pass through to get to you. You're his prize, and he can't take his off of you, eyes off of you. And so he goes to the cross, and he's crucified. He's dead. He's buried. He's driven down into hell. But then he rises up from the grave and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he did all of that so that he could be with you. You're his prize. His eyes were on you the whole time. He pictured you in his mind and in his heart as he endured the cross. And here's what that means for you. If you have your eyes fixed on him, you're looking at him, and there's a cross in front of you. There's suffering. There's pain. There's loss that you're about to walk through. If you look at that cross that you're about to face, if you look at the loss you're about to endure, if you look at the pain, you're running the other way. Because there's no prize on the other side of it. But if you're looking at Christ beyond the cross, then you become like Peter. You can face persecution. You can face death. You can face evil. And you're, you, it's like you're looking at the face, but you're not. You're looking beyond it. And you see that Christ is on the other side of it. And so you See, the joy that's set before you, Christ, you endure your own cross, your own pain, your own suffering. Because you see him on the other side of it and he's your prize and all you want is him. So it's not like I have to endure that to get to him. It's like I just want him and whatever's in front of me, I'm going through it, under it, over it, whatever it has to be because he is my prize. Because he has made me his prize. If you catch that, well... Take 12 people all over again who believe that, and the world will change all over again. Take that and believe it, and you're a different kind of husband. You're a different kind of wife. You're a different kind of parent. You're a different kind of friend. You're a different kind of worker. Your life has changed because every single day, your eyes are fixed upon the one who will be such a prize to you that you'll endure anything to get to him. And you find out it's all worth it. That's the making of a hero. Let's pray. Father, would you make us into people like Peter, who in the past have denied you, betrayed you, been cowardly, and now have found you as our prize. And we long for you so deeply, so badly, that it doesn't matter what's in front of us. You are the truth, the beauty, and the love, and the delight that we long for, so we just chase you. Show us that you are enough Show us that you are our prize. And when we doubt, 
Let us see you approach the cross, looking at us as your prize, so we might believe all over again. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider. Follow our social media at Grove Church PSL and check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.